Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one an opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that we need to be in fellowship, so that means confession of sin. A confession of sin is simply admitting and acknowledging your sins to God the Father in silent prayer. Uh, and at, instantly we're told we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And while we are having silent prayer, Jeff, if you'll close that door in the back and we'll get these other doors closed, that would be good. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that <clears throat> we can have this time this evening to come together to focus upon your word recognizing that in your sovereignty you oversee all of history. And especially in the book of Acts, we see your hand as you were expanding the church, empowering the apostles and those who were teaching and evangelizing in the early church and seeing this remarkable spread as people responded to the truth of the gospel. Father, the same is true today. It may not be as true here as it is in other places in the world. These things always change with the trends of history. But we know that you are in control, and we know that one of the purposes for the rise and fall of nations, one of the factors in the rise and fall of nations is their their attitude towards the Jewish people, their attitude toward Israel, and their attitude toward the gospel and the truth of God's word. And we pray that this would be a time of real reflection in our nation's history as we approach this election, and that as many people do proclaim the truth of your word, there is uh, a strong proclamation of the truth of the gospel and other biblical issues related to this election, that it would uh, attract the attention of those who are seeking meaning, purpose, and value in life, and that we recognize that our hope is not in politics, our hope is not in the flesh, but nevertheless, government, human government, is a divine institution, and it is in this nation the responsibility of every believer to be involved with the political in the political sphere to the degree possible to be knowledgeable informed and to vote as consistent as possible with uh, biblical truth and the divine institutions father we pray that you would uh, continue to um, make the issues clear in this election and that we would see the administration uh, that is currently in power lose power that we would see a return to a group of leaders and politicians that would emphasize values consistent with the Scripture. Father, we also pray for 
those who are, are not here for health reasons, especially Tom Flint and his recovery, uh, that he, after long surgery yesterday and a lot of pain that he's in now, we just pray that you would would uh, comfort him, that the right medicine drugs would be given to uh, take the edge off that pain, that he might be able to sleep and rest uh, beginning his recovery from that uh, from that surgery. We pray that you guide and direct us in our thinking this evening as we focus on your word. In Christ's name, amen. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We're starting a transition section this evening. The last part of chapter 9 is indeed a transition from uh, Saul and the salvation of Saul to uh, back to Peter in preparation for the salvation of the Gentiles and the inclusion of the Gentiles within the body of Christ. This is the focal point of the next uh, two chapters, chapters 10 uh, and chapters 11, where uh, the Apostle Peter will take the gospel to the to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and this is the official inclusion of the Gentiles within the body of Christ. Chapter 12 takes us, uh, continues to focus, or at the end of chapter 11, there's a little focus on Paul and Barnabas, and then there's a shift back in chapter 12 to Peter, and then in chapter 13, there's a shift back to Paul. So we see this transition through the book of Acts. As we go through the basic message of Acts, it is that God is, through the Holy Spirit, is is expanding the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. He is not doing it apart from human involvement. The sovereignty of God never works apart from human volition and human responsibility. God is the one who is bringing about the growth. God is the one who is empowering the apostles and the disciples, just as he does today. It is not up to us to make the uh, uh, the gospel effective to people. We can only go as far as our understanding of the truth is. But we can be honest. We can present the gospel as the apostle does many times. We can relay our own personal testimony and how we came to understand truth and understand the gospel. But ultimately, it is up to God, the Holy Spirit, because the issue is not intellect, intellectual issues. The issue is not about how well you can argue the gospel. The issue is not about how well you have mastered the evidence for the gospel. But these things should be there because Scripture says we should do the best we can do. But ultimately, we have to realize it's not up to us because the issue isn't a logical issue. The issue isn't an evidentiary issue. The issue isn't an intellectual issue. The issue is a spiritual issue. And that people exercise negative volition and they reject the gospel, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But even the most hardened person hostile to the gospel may in their heart of hearts, at the core of their heart, the core of their soul, they may be positive to the gospel like the Apostle Paul. And it may be you or I or some other person who's the one who uh, God uses in explaining the gospel to create that event that is similar to the Damascus Road experience of the Apostle Paul and that it is at that, that instant that God the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind of that individual 
uh, to the truth of the gospel, and they become saved. So we never know. We can't prejudge or pre predetermine or guess about a person's uh, spiritual condition just because they're negative. Today doesn't mean they are truly negative and will be negative uh, always. And the unfolding of Acts in Acts 1 through 7, the focal point geographically was in Jerusalem. As Jesus commanded the disciples, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem focus was chapters 1 through 7. Then uh, that ends with the death of Stephen. Then chapter 8 focuses on that expansion, the expansion to taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And then uh, that occurs in chapter 8. Then chapter 9 shifts gears to, to uh, focus on the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, which lays the groundwork for the last stage that will come starting in chapter 13, the gospel expanding to the uttermost part of the earth. Chapter 8 focused on Samaria and Judea. Chapter 9, the first part of chapter 9 on the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. And now in 932, there is a shift back to Peter. Peter is the primary focal point among the apostles from chapters 1 through uh, 6. Chapter 7 focuses on Stephen. Chapter 8 focuses on Philip. Chapter 9, the first part, on Paul. And now we're back to Peter. And Peter will be the focal point at the, the last part of 9, from 32 to 43. Or 32 to, let me see, where are we? Yes, 32 to 43. And then in uh, chapter 10... And chapter 11. Uh, and then, then and in a couple of places there, we see a brief vignette on what's going on with Paul. And then there's almost a complete shift in, starting in 13 to Paul. And we don't hear about Peter anymore except briefly in chapter 15. So it's, it's interesting how it's all Peter, then uh, Philip and Stephen, or Stephen and Philip rather in that order, and then Paul, and then Peter, and then Paul, and then Peter, and then it's Paul for the rest of the book. So that shows how there's a transition from a Jewish-focused gospel ministry at the beginning to a Gentile-focused ministry at the end. From Peter to Paul is a transition. Paul does not invent Christianity. Now, that is something that liberal professors uh, teach in history classes and in comparative religion classes, and you'll probably hear it in philosophy classes and psychology classes. This is this is a typical attack and assault from from liberals. They they look at everything in the Bible from a naturalistic viewpoint, so they basically discount whatever is said in the Bible. It's not really a historical. It's really a propaganda document. It's not historical, so you don't believe that. You just believe tradition, and Paul was the one who really organized uh, Christianity, so he invented it and forget about Jesus and everybody else. And that's just totally absurd. There's no evidence for that. Uh, it's just another way in which they seek to suppress, uh, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, as we get into this section in uh, the last part of chapter 9, the focal point is on three basic, three cities. Jerusalem, I've circled just as a point of reference, 
But the three, cir- the three uh, locations, the three geographical locations that uh, enter in here are, pri- are primarily Lydda, which is 25 miles to the north, uh, northwest of Jerusalem, and Joppa, which is another 10 or 11 miles to the northwest of Lydda. And then as we go into chapter 10, the focus will shift up towards Caesarea, which is where uh, Cornelius the uh, Gentile uh, uh, centurion, Roman soldier, is living. He is a God-fearer. He is following the Mosaic law, but he's not a, a, a believer yet. Now, just a couple of things that you ought to note geographically here. I love maps and to explain maps. You see where Jerusalem is, and the line, the double-arrow line that I've drawn there from Jerusalem to Lydda is roughly along the lines of the highway that goes from Jerusalem to the airport, the Ben-Gurion Airport, which is uh, just a stone's throw north of modern Lod, which is, which is the modern city, uh, of, of Lydda. It's 10 miles from Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is a large metropolitan uh, city that wraps around ancient Joppa. And then uh, that is, just so you have some perspective, Joppa is about an hour's drive, about 45 miles or so from Caesarea. So we're not talking, when you look at that map there, it's a little difficult perhaps to get some perspective, but maybe that will help you from Jerusalem, if you look at that as a triangle, where you have uh, uh, the base of the triangle from Jerusalem to Joppa, and then the left side going up to Caesarea, and then the uh, another uh, angle coming down from Caesarea to Jerusalem, that's about 70 miles, or maybe a little less, 60 miles or so. And it's not a very large area. Just think about uh, Houston. From Houston, 60 miles north gets you up uh, a little bit close to Livingston. Or if you're going up uh, 45, it doesn't even, 60 miles doesn't even, doesn't even get you to Huntsville. It's about 70 miles, I think, to Huntsville from, from Houston. So that's not very far. So all of this territory from Jerusalem to Caesarea down to Joppa and Lydda would, pro- would all fit, between, probably it would all fit within Harris County. So this isn't a very large, uh, large uh, amount of territory. But it does show a transition as you move out from Jerusalem. You're moving uh, into what's you can see the topography on the map there. Uh, the shaded area towards the center is the hill country of Samaria in the north, Judea in the south. And by the time you get to Lydda, you're down into the coastal plain, which is called the Shephelah, and that is the all that area from Ashkelon. Uh, down in the south along the coast there, uh, Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, Joppa, all the way up to uh, the north where you see uh, Sikaminium, which is where modern Haifa is. All that area is known as the uh, known as the Shephelah. So you see this uh, transition as you move from Jerusalem to Lydda. Once you get to Lydda, then to Joppa, then to Caesarea, you're moving into areas that are dominated more and more by Gentiles, populated more and more by Gentiles, so that Caesarea is a Gentile uh, Gentile city. There are some Jews there, but it's primarily a Gentile city, and this is the seat of where, uh, uh, <clears throat> where the uh, procurator 
uh, and the governor for Judea will uh, will live in his castle. I'll show you a little bit about that a little later on. There's not much said in the Old Testament about Lydda or Lod. It is mentioned in Joshua. It's mentioned uh, uh, one or two other places, but nothing of significance. It really doesn't take on any sort of significance until after the uh, after the the Babylonian exile. Then it becomes a center of rebellion for uh, during the Hasmonean period. This map is a map of the early first century BC. Modin here, which is also along the highway now, modern Modin is a, uh, along the highway from Jerusalem to uh, Tel Aviv. This is where the Hasmonean revolt began, and and uh, Lydda then becomes a center of rebellion against the uh, Syrian or the Antiochian Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, and that area, then it begins to take on uh, more and more significance. So that just gives you a little bit of a historical, geographical background. By the time you get into the New Testament, Lydda is a com- major commercial center. It's on the plain, so it's, a, it's, it's surrounded by a tremendously productive agricultural land, uh, farming communities, cattle, uh, sheep, goats, all in that particular area. And so Lydda has a huge uh, agricultural market. It's a commercial center, and this is the the town that Peter is coming to. It is a significant uh, village at that particular time with a lot of traffic. It has a Gentile population, and it has a Jewish Jewish population. Now, a question that we ought to ask as we just sort of do a, have a bird's eye flyover of, of the last part of this chapter is there are two major events at the end of chapter nine. The first event is covered from chapter from verse thirty-two rather to verse thirty-five, and this is the healing of an individual by the name of Aeneas. This is the only time he's mentioned, and this is all that we know about him. He's been paralyzed for eight years, and Peter comes to uh, Lydda and heals him. Then he is asked to come to Joppa uh, on the coast, and at Joppa he heals a woman who is identified as a disciple. Uh, by the name of Tabitha, which is translated uh, Dorcas, and that she is uh, very involved, a strong believer, involved in a lot of of, uh, of works, good works, charitable deeds. Uh, this is the operation of the spiritual gift of mercy, and she dies, and Peter will uh, come, and uh, she will be restored to life. There will be a, a resurrection, uh, resuscitation at that point, and she is brought back to life miraculously when he commands her to arise in chapter 40. As a result of that, and probably as a result of what had happened at Lydda, because it's not too far away, and uh, we see that there are numerous people who are saved. At the end of the, after the event in Lydda, uh, we're told all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord, saw what happened with Aeneas. This would not refer to the Gentiles. It would only refer to the Jewish community. So the vast majority of the Jewish community uh, there turned to the Lord. This means that they were they were saved. And then after the uh, resurrection and the restoration of life to um, Tabitha, she is raised from the dead. 
The term resurrection is not used, simply the term that she is raised from the dead. When that happens, then uh, many, verse 42, it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So there is this this, uh, tremendous expansion of the church among the Jewish community in Lydda and at Joppa. So the question that we should ask is, why does the Holy Spirit include this material? Why is this significant? And that's a question we should always ask whenever we're reading Scripture is, why is this here? We have to think about that in a lot of, a lot of times. Why does God uh, want us to know this? Why this and not other things? I'm sure there were other villages, other cities that, that Peter visited, that there were other miracles that were performed, but these are the two that are mentioned here. Why this? And that's an important question that we should ask. This God, Luke just didn't include this because he thought these were nice little uh, stories, and this would entertain some kids and some children in Sunday school. Uh, in fact, uh, the inclusion of things like this might have been a negative because there are people who distorted this into thinking that these this kind of healing should be normative in the church. And that's a misunderstanding of the significance of what is going on here uh, completely. Second Corinthians 12, 12, the apostle Paul says, truly the signs of an apostle. So there he is stating that there were specific signs that are the credentials of an apostle. They are the calling card of an apostle so that you could identify who an apostle was. The, and he says, for the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And the term signs and wonders is a term for, for, for the miraculous. Uh, if I may be so bold, this was basically the photo ID of an apostle in the ancient world. They didn't have cameras. They couldn't take a picture. But the Old Testament presented a picture of what the Messiah would look like. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would uh, uh, he would uh, uh, be crucified. He would be raised from the dead on the third day. Uh, he would perform many miracles. He would give sight to the blind and restore uh, uh, restore the lame. And all of these were were if you take all of those different prophecies and bundle them together, it painted a picture of what the Messiah would look like so that when the Messiah showed up, then people could identify them and there would not be a mistake. There were always those who were coming along claiming to be the Messiah. There were those uh, even at the time of Jesus and there were those who came later. For example, there was one called Bar Kokhba in 135 AD who led a re- revolt against uh, against Rome, and it was violently put down, and some 700 to 800,000 Jews were killed in that revolt. There was also uh, uh, n- numerous uh, others, in, like in Caesarea, another city where all the whole entire Jewish population was wiped out, uh, wiped out by the Romans. So these these miracles were credentials. They they identified the Messiah. And now when we come to these miracles, it's very clear, for example, in verse 34, Peter says to Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus HaMashiach, heals you. you." Peter doesn't take credit for it. 
He says, Jesus heals you. And he commanded it at that point. He said, arise and make your bed. So that it is very clear what is going on. But this has a purpose and a function in the ministry of of Peter. In 9.32 we read, Now it came to pass, or literally in the Greek, it happened. It just is a typical Semitic idiom. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you often run across the same kind of phraseology. This came to pass, and then that came to pass. And so it's translated basically the same way in, in this passage. I came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country. So he is traveling on an evangelistic journey where he's visiting from one town, one village to another, and he is proclaiming the gospel. He is evangelizing, as we saw in earlier chapters, a word, the, the Greek word that is frequently translated preached isn't the verb keruso, it is the verb evangelizo, which means to bring the good news. And so Peter is bringing the good news, and it says in the text that he also came to Lydda. It's just matter of fact, uh, as he's going through this journey from town to town, village to village, he came to Lydda, and he came to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Now, the term saints is a term that refers to, to every believer, not just those who have reached a certain level of spiritual maturity or our political power within the institutional church. But this term saint refers to any believer. It simply means the sanctified ones. And we are all sanctified at the instant of salvation. We're set apart uh, to the service of God. So this is a term for Christians, a synonym for Christians, a synonym for believers. And so he comes to the believers who lived in Lydda. So by this time, there is a, there's a large number of Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah in Lydda, and so he is he is coming to that group. Now, here's a picture of Lydda back in the late 19th century, and it probably didn't look much different uh, many, many years, uh, many, many centuries prior to that. Uh, things didn't change a whole lot from the first century to the end of the 19th century, but in the last hundred years or so, things have changed a tremendous amount. There, he, we're told in verse 33, he found a certain man named Aeneas, now, that name would have been a popular name. There is a, <clears throat> the, the work, the Aeneid in, in Latin was well known. And so this would have been a popular name, especially from some who had perhaps read the Aeneid and uh, was impressed with it. He found this man named Aeneas. Doesn't mean he was, he was a Gentile. It just, this it would have been a popular name at the time who had been bedridden eight years. It's a funny phraseology. It could be translated he had been bedridden since he was eight years old, but it probably means he had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, Hamashiach, uh, HaChristos, heals you. Notice, doesn't say anything, minimizes any statement about Aeneas's faith. Aeneas isn't looking for to be healed. He is not expecting to be healed. He is not anticipating any kind of healing. He is simply going, living his day-to-day existence in his bed, paralyzed, and Peter uh, shows up. We don't have any 
reason to know why Peter showed up. The text is silent on that, but he comes at the, we can assume, at the prompting of God the Holy Spirit in order to perform uh, this particular miracle. And we should ask the question, why the miracle? It's, it is, as I said earlier, to establish his credentials, but it is also more than that because at this stage it would also call attention to him and to his message. The same thing took place during the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he says, um, Arise and make your bed. This is a command to get up now. He uses an aorist imperative indicating that he is expected to stand up right now and then to make his bed. And then uh, we're told he arose immediately. He didn't have to go through six weeks of physical therapy. He didn't have to have his muscles, which would have atrophied after eight years, have to have his muscles uh, massaged. He didn't have to go through various uh, stretching exercises in order to regain mobility before he uh, got up and walked. He just instantly stood up. God had instantly healed him and restored all of his muscular ability, all of the vascular uh, functions within those muscles and the strength through the uh, tendons and the ligaments, and he got up instantly and walked. He didn't have to learn how to walk again. Now, if you talk to anyone who's had some sort of a car accident uh, where they've had uh, bone breakage or they've had serious damage to their to their muscles, they have to go through all of these different things before they can walk again. They have to, in many cases, depending on how serious it is, but in some serious cases, they have to learn how to walk all over again. And the result in verse 35 is that all who dwelt in Lydda and the neighboring, neighboring village of Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. This is the verb epistrepo, which is a synonym for... Uh, repent, metanoeo, but it, it simply focuses on the fact that they are turning to the Lord. They are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the source of their salvation. Now, this is not an unusual type of event. I want to look at four passages before we go uh, any further that parallel this event in in uh, Luke. The first passage I want you to turn to is in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, this remember Luke wrote both uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And in Luke chapter 5, he tells the story of a of another of a miracle that Jesus performed in in uh, uh chapter 5. In chapter 5 he talks about some of the uh, miracles that Jesus has performed that when he calls the has called the disciples and uh, gives them a, a phenomenal catch of fish in the first uh, few verses. Then there is the uh, cleansing of a leper in verses 12 through 16. This was a sign of the apostle. Even the rabbis at that time understood that the Messiah, there were two things the Messiah would do that, uh, that, that, that would indicate that he was the Messiah. One was giving sight to someone who was blind, and the other one was healing a leper, that no one but God could do either one. Now, in verse 17, we come to uh, another 
miracle, one similar to the one that we see in uh, Peter performing in Acts 9. Uh, It happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, uh, Judea and Jerusalem. So we don't know uh, precisely uh, where Jesus is. He's, He's been in Galilee because in the first part of the chapter he's up on uh, Lake Canaret, uh, which is known as the Sea of Galilee, and he has uh, uh, that is where he's called uh, Peter and the disciples. But after that, we're just told he was in a certain city in verse 12, and on a certain day in verse 17, he very well could still be up in the north. And it's likely that this is a parallel passage to one in um, in the other Gospels where he is in Capernaum which is where he lived at that particular time and uh, was Peter's hometown. And it could be identified with that parallel miracle. Happened on a certain day, but here he's got quite a crowd who come from all over the land. Now, if you've traveled in Israel, going from, that's a good three- or four-day journey up from Judea to Galilee. So he's drawn a huge crowd from Judea, from Jerusalem, and we're told the power of the Lord was present to heal them, that is, uh, the people that were coming to him. And men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. When they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Now, if you live around here or live in Texas, you may know what a shotgun house is. A shotgun house is a long, narrow house where you just all the rooms are one behind the other. And in order to go through the house, you start at the front, and you go through the, uh, the, the, the living area, you go through the kitchen, then you go through the bedroom, and that's how you move through the house. And I've seen these houses in the uh, ruins there the <clears throat> in, in Capernaum, and they were a lot like that. You had to go to go from room to room. You just didn't have a hallway with rooms branching off. You just went from one room through one room and into the next and then into the next. And so Jesus is inside, and they can't get to him because the, the outer rooms are filled with people. So they get, went up onto the roof and work their way back to the uh, area where Jesus was, and they they have a thatched roof, and so they just start pulling the roof back and digging a hole through the roof so that they can lower uh, this paralyzed man down through the uh, down through the roof so that Jesus can heal him. And when Jesus looks up, he sees their faith. They are they haven't said a thing, but it's obvious they believe Jesus can heal the man and they're going to do whatever it takes to get the paralyzed man in front of Jesus so Jesus can heal him. And so verse 20 simply says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, they haven't said anything about forgiveness. They haven't come to seek forgiveness. They haven't said anything about sin. They just have this paralyzed man and they want him to be healed. But Jesus is going to use this to teach, to show that he can, if he can do something uh, unprecedented in the physical realm, then this will demonstrate that he can do what he claims to do in the spiritual realm. And so he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. This immediately 
irritated, aggravated, and angered the Pharisees and the scribes, and now they're challenging him because only God can forgive anyone of sin. So again, we see this is evidence of the deity of Christ, that he that Jesus believed he was God because he believed he had the ability uh, to forgive sins. And so the scribes and Pharisees are saying, who is this who's speaking blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, so in his omniscience, he's able to understand, know what is going on. He answered and said to them, what are you reasoning? In other words, what are you thinking about in your hearts? Which is easier? I love this argument. It's very simple, very sophisticated. Jesus just says, what's easier, the easier thing to do? To say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? See, I can, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. That's an easy thing to say. But, but there's, because you don't see whether they are or not. But to say get up and walk, and to have somebody actually get up and walk, that's almost, that, only God can do that. So his reasoning is going to be, if I can do what only God can do by healing this paralyzed man so he can walk, then the conclusion is that I must also be able to do what only God can do and forgive sins. So he says in verses 23 and 24, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, and he uses a significant title here, emphasizing his humanity, but this is a title that comes from Daniel chapter 8, or Daniel chapter 7 rather, and Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is the one who is the Messiah, who is sent from God, who will uh, uh, deliver Israel and defeat all of Israel's enemies. So he is making specific claims to be the Messiah, and he is indicating this by his credentials to heal uh, the the, uh, paralyzed man and to declare his forgiveness. So he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately, just as we saw in Acts 9, there's an immediate response. He rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. So what Peter is doing in the miracle with Aeneas is is a reflection of what Jesus did in healing the paralyzed man. The purpose is is that in relating this miracle, the Holy Spirit is showing that Peter is an an apostle and is a representative of Jesus Christ with the authority of Jesus Christ. Then we turn to a second passage, just a couple of chapters over, maybe one page or so, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and again we see uh, two more, uh, a couple more incidences of of healing. Uh, First, the healing of a centurion's servant in the first 10 verses, and then uh, the raising, uh, Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. I want you to notice that in the scripture, the term resurrection, Anastasia, is only used of Jesus' resurrection. The term that's used in all the other passages is the term raising from the dead. And so I'm trying to uh, articulate this as close to biblical terminology as, as, as possible. Raising somebody from the dead indicates clearly that the person was dead. 
whereas other terms that have been used like resuscitation, you can resuscitate somebody who's drowned, and it doesn't mean they have actually, clearly, totally, finally died. But the point in Scripture is they're dead, 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 and it's impossible. Nobody's going to give them mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and have them start breathing again. So the term resuscitation is a little ambiguous. So the Scripture is very clear, could have used a term like resuscitation, but uses clarity, raised from the dead, indicating very clearly that these, individual, this, these individuals are dead. Verse 11, now it happened the day after that he, after healing the centurion servant, they they went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and as well as a large crowd. So wherever Jesus is going at this point in his ministry, he's attracting a large following. When he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. So this is after he's died. They're going to bury him. This is probably the next day at the latest. They're carrying him out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with us. So this is the funeral procession. They're going out to bury him. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now this reminds me of what happens when Lazarus died. Lazarus died and they buried him. Four days later, Jesus showed up. And when Jesus shows up, his first conversation is with uh, is with Martha, uh, and um, with Martha, and says, and and she says, "Well, Lord, if you'd just been here, if you'd just been here, my brother wouldn't have died." And Jesus said uh, to her, "Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live." Do you believe this? Great verse because it points out. He doesn't say, "You want to invite me into your heart, Martha? Do you want me to invite me into your life?" He doesn't use any of these nebulous, ambiguous, non-biblical terms that are popular in evangelicalism today. He uses the, the terminology that's used throughout Scripture. He says, do you believe this? And, Jesus, and Martha said, yes, I do, because that was the issue. She believed Jesus. So Jesus goes on, sees all the mourners, and he looks on the mourners, and in that passage we read that Jesus wept. That is the shortest verse in the English Bible, not the shortest verse in the Greek, but the shortest verse in the English Bible. And he weeps not because he feels sorry for Lazarus or because because he is personally grieving over the death of Lazarus because Jesus knows that in about five minutes he's going to say, Lazarus, come on out of there and let's go home and eat fried chicken for lunch. And Lazarus is going to come out. So Jesus isn't weeping over over the fact that Lazarus is dead. He's weeping because he sees the impact of grief on the people, their sorrow, the fact that they are hurting, that they are going through all of the emotional trauma associated with grief and the loss of a loved one, and that this is not normal. This was not what God intended. This is the result of sin. This is the result of Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, people are going to die because of the judgment on Adam's sin announced in Genesis chapter 3 that man would return, uh, came from dust, and so would return to dust. And so Jesus has compassion. God has compassion. That means he he cares, he is concerned, and he takes notice of our 
uh, of our limitations and of our emotional distress at the time of death. Uh, he is not just uh, just distant somewhere up there in the skies like just a, a, a steel castle or something. There is compassion. That it means, simply means that there is concern and focus on the, the people who are suffering. And he says to her, do not weep. And he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Same command to, uh, as, as uh, Peter used. Arise, and he raises from the dead. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Now, the next miracle that Peter performs in the second part of this episode in chapter 9 is to raise Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead. So this is a parallel to that, and in both of these miracles in Acts 9, we see Peter reflecting the kind of miracles performed by Jesus. And so the response from the people in verse 16 is, Fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and they said God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. People talked. They didn't need email and Twitter in order to get the message out. They talked, and the word spread rapidly. Now, I want you to notice the response. What was their response? Did they say, oh, this is the Messiah? No, they didn't. What did they say? They said, this is a great prophet. Because someone who performed these kinds of miracles did something that had been done previous, the kind of thing that had been done previously, and it was a sign of a great prophet. Now, where would we go to find parallel examples from the Old Testament? Well, we're going to go to two places. So hold your, just go ahead and we'll leave here and we'll go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 is the uh, healing of the widow's son in First uh, Kings 17. This is uh, Elijah, and Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, not as great as Moses, but he was probably second only to Moses. And he is hiding from Ahab at this point, and the first place he hid was by a, by a, um, a brook, the brook Kerith, and ran out of water because Elijah had announced that there would be a drought and it would not rain again until he uh, confronted Ahab, until he said that it would uh, again. So when the, water, uh, when the water ran out, the Lord provided for him and said, now I want you to go to the next place where I'll provide for you, and that is to, to Zarephath, outside of the land in, uh, in Phoenicia. Now, the thing we should, one thing we should learn from this is no matter how great the disaster may be, and there are a lot of people today predicting massive worldwide economic uh, agricultural disaster that, uh, uh, and it just goes on and on and on, and, and that is, well, may be, but we don't need to worry about that because just as God provided for Elijah, God can provide for us. And it may not be in the way that you've become accustomed, but God is going to provide for us. And God provided for Elijah and in the episode with the widow of Zarephath, as the um, as the uh, bin of flour was and the jar of oil was running dry. Every day they would go back to it, and miraculously there was more. God supplied the need. Now, after a while, the the son of the woman became sick, and he died. No breath was left in him. Verse seventeen. So she blames Elijah. 
typical response of somebody focused on themselves and their sin nature. And Elijah's response was to trust God, and he told the woman to give him his son. He took him out of her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him out on his own bed, and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? So he prays in verse 21 that the Lord would bring this child's soul back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. So there is the raising of the widow's son from the dead there. And then if you flip over a few chapters to Second Kings chapter 4, we see a similar event in Second Kings chapter 4 uh, with the next great prophet, which is Elisha. Elisha, and Elisha is uh, staying with a woman in Shunem, which is up near Samaria in the north, and she has, fi- has given birth to a son finally, and now this, this son dies. And in verse 17, we read that, that the woman finally given birth to the son, and the son grew, grew up, and then the son dies, and then Elisha comes, and in this story, uh, he comes and the child is laid out, uh, starting in about verse verse uh, 30. The mother confronts Elisha and says, As the Lord lives, as your soul lived, I will not leave you. Uh, she's, not gonna, she's confronted Elisha, and she's not going to let go until he brings her son back. So as Elijah, Elisha is approaching the house, his servant Gehazi went ahead and laid the staff of Elisha on the face of the child, but there's no voice, no hearing, no no breath. The, the child is dead. When Elisha shows up, uh, he goes to the child who's lying dead on the bed, and he closes the door uh, and prays to the Lord. And he goes up and several times goes to the child, lies down on him, and then he uh, then the child came to life. Verse 35 uh, the child sneezed seven times, the child opened his eyes, and the child's restored to life. So these are signs of a prophet. So when Jesus shows up and he's performing these miracles and the people say he must be a great prophet, they're operating on that frame of reference from the Old Testament, from Elijah and Elisha. These are his credentials. And then when Peter shows up, now we can go back to our passage in Acts chapter 9, when Peter shows up, and he starts performing these kinds of miracles. He makes it very clear that he's not doing it in his own power, that it is Jesus that is doing it through him. This indicates, puts him in the tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. And so it is, it establishes his credentials and establishes his, his credibility. So he goes from, uh, from Lydda or Lod, and then he goes to, he is called to, from there to Joppa. Verse 36 we read, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Tabitha means, uh, Tabitha means a deer or a gazelle. Uh, in, um, in Greek, which is translated Dorcas, or into uh into Aramaic. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So there's a little more said about her. Aeneas is just one of the saints. He, he's a believer. But Dorcas is 
has a significant ministry among the believers. She's identified by the feminine form of methetes, meaning that she is considered a disciple, a word that here indicates that she is uh, really pursuing uh, spiritual growth. There's a lot more said about her. I, w- I want you to note, I've been dealing with the roles of men and women uh, on Sunday morning, and sometimes in our liberal society you will hear people talk about how the Bible uh, minimizes the role of women. Well, here in this passage we have very little said about the man, Aeneas, but there's a lot said in praise of uh, Tabitha. There's a lot here said to emphasize her role, her ministry, that she is ministering to the people in the area. She's full of good works and charitable deeds. She is helping those who are in need and people are depending upon her. Now, there are some who have uh, have suggested that she was uh, a widow and this was a function of the widows because the, the widows were involved in the... Uh, and taking care of her, but there's there's nothing there that indicate that she was uh, part of this group of widows. Uh, verse 37 says, It happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. This was standard procedure under Jewish custom and Jewish law. And since Lydda was near Joppa, it's 10 or 11 miles away, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, that is, those believers in in, in Joppa, had heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to him. So here he's going to go from Lydda to Joppa and walk about 10 miles, which is going to take about two to three hours or so to arrive there. And when he arrives, uh, she is dead, and, and she's been prepared for burial and laid out in her room. So in verse 40 we read, But Peter put them all out, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, and again, using a command, using an aorist imperative, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, see, this is where widows come into the picture, and widows uh, he presented, looks like I lost the end of the verse there on the slide, uh, he presented... Uh, he presented her alive. And then verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now I want you to notice how brilliantly the Holy Spirit reveals this. These are very quick episodes, but they're, they're significant in developing this transition to what is going to happen in the coming chapter. It moves Peter... To Joppa, we see the credentials that God has established for Peter so that what happens in the next episode is consistent because Peter has now uh, developed this, this tremendous reputation in, as being an apostle and performing the same kind of miracles as the Lord. And he shows up in Joppa and he stays with a man named Simon, a tanner. Now, for those of you who've read ahead and know what's happening, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, Peter is going to have a vision. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is going to have a vision, and the two are counterparts of one another. But in, uh, in Peter's vision, look over at verse 9. He goes up on the housetop to pray. It's about the sixth hour, which is about noon. 
And he became very hungry and wanted to eat. It was lunchtime. But while they were making ready, he fell into a trance. It wasn't because he was hungry. He didn't have, um, you know, he hadn't been fasting. He doesn't pass out. This is a divine event. And in that trance, uh, heaven opens and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and letting down to earth. So he sees this huge tablecloth coming down. And on this tablecloth, verse 12, are all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, many creeping things were unclean, and birds of the air, many birds were unclean and could not be eaten or touched. And a voice came to him, God speaking to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So we see a couple of important points of application. Number one, God authorizes the killing of animals for food. Now, there are many groups, PETA not the least of them, who just immediately determine that this is the book of the devil because God says that you should kill animals for food. This also shows that there is not to be a spiritual or theological basis for vegetarianism. Now, there are a lot of folks who, for one reason or another, may decide to limit their intake of, of, of meat, of, of animal flesh. But it's not to be a spiritual or biblical or theological reason. It's authorized under the Noahic Covenant, and it's authorized here. And God says to kill and eat. God authorizes slaughterhouses. And this it should be done in a humane way, but it, there's nothing wrong with it. So Peter's to kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Notice Peter says, no, 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 I've never killed an animal. He's not against hunting. He's not against, he's a, remember, he's a fisherman. Peter's a good outdoorsman. But he says, I haven't eaten anything unclean. He understood the point, that the point didn't have to do with the killing. It had to do with touching and consuming that which had been forbidden under the Mosaic law. And uh, Peter says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, saying, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So the point here is God now declares all these food groups, all these animal groups that had been previously designated unclean as being clean. Now, it's not because uh, for any health reasons, it's not because suddenly they discovered that they need to uh, prepare uh, these uh, animals a certain way in order to uh, eat and not get any diseases. It didn't have anything to do with health. It had to do with a spiritual teaching point in the Mosaic Law, and that has ended because of the, de- the end of the, of, of the Mosaic Law. And so Peter gets the point here. Now, now, in preparation for this, Peter is gradually learning that what is declared unclean by the Mosaic Law, Gentiles, no Orthodox Jew at this time would ever go into the house of, of a Gentile. But you know, there's something else going on here. They're not going to go into an unclean house. What else renders something unclean? Death does. And what's the problem with Simon? Simon the Tanner. (laughs) He's dealing with dead animals all the time. So Simon is unclean. 
So there's foreshadowing here, and there is a, a, the, the gradual recognition by Peter uh, that, that, that unclean isn't an issue anymore. And it begins with the fact that he's living in an unclean house with Simon the, Simon the Tanner. And Simon lives in Joppa. Now, as I bring to a close, I want you to always think of Joppa. I teach this every time we go to Israel, we go to, to Tel Aviv and to Joppa. That when you go to Joppa, you need to think of uh, that the lesson you learn from Joppa and Caesarea is God's grace to the Gentiles. There ought to be an association there. And uh, this is part of um, the framework concept is associating doctrines with places and events. Joppa is God's grace to the Gentiles. Two key events happened at Joppa. The first happened with Jonah. God told Jonah to take the gospel to the, um, to the Ninevites, and Jonah said, They're our enemy, Lord. I'm going to Spain. And so he got on a ship at Joppa to head west to Spain, and God sent a fish. Now, this is a whale. The Bible doesn't say it's a whale. The Bible says God prepared a great fish, and it was a great fish that, uh, that when, jo- when the, the ship that Jonah was on got encountered a great storm, Jonah realized it was all because of him, and he was thrown overboard, and it was the great fish that swallowed him and brought him back and vomited him up on the beach. And so there's this monument there. But what was what was the purpose of Jonah's ministry? To take the gospel to the Ninevites, Gentiles. So that whole story in Jonah is a picture in the Old Testament of God's grace to the Gentiles. Well, in the New Testament, it is when uh, Peter is staying here at the home of the Simon the Tanner in Joppa, which is this uh, peninsula area here, this in the background here is the modern city of Tel Aviv, which wraps around the old uh, area of Joppa, that um, there at Joppa, he's going to receive these messengers from Cornelius, and God is going to tell him to follow them and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Joppa should always be associated in our thinking with God's grace to the Gentiles. Just a couple of slides here to show you uh, give you the aerial view of, uh, of Tel Aviv, and Joppa is just this this area down here on the coast, and this is the harbor area here. And uh, then inside, there's a small museum where they have some of the archaeological remains of Joppa, and this is what it looks like looking out over the Mediterranean. And uh, they even have the location, the traditional location. I don't know how accurate this is. Uh, I doubt it's accurate. This is the home of Simon the Tanner, the uh, sort of traditional location. I don't know what the actual historical association is. I don't think it's much, but it's in the close vicinity. And then next time we'll start looking at Caesarea, which is up to the north, and that gives you a pretty good idea of the phenomenal city of Caesarea, which is where uh, Cornelius lived. It's primarily a Roman city, a Gentile city, and God's grace will go to the Gentiles. So we'll come back next time to go forward into our study of God's grace to the Gentiles in chapters uh, 10 and 11. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to uh, look at your word, to realize that, that there is a perfect order and symmetry to your word. 
and that you are the one who is behind the growth of the church. You're the one who enabled uh, Peter to uh, bring about these miracles as the unique uh, credential of an apostle. And Father, we pray too that we might have the same desire Peter had, that is to proclaim the truth of the gospel to those around us, that uh, we might fulfill the mission you've given us to be witnesses throughout the world to your grace through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today. In Christ's name, amen.